Uh, turn in your Bibles to um, Jonah chapter 4. Uh, I, trust, uh, I trust the Lord was with you all last week. I was down in, in, um, in Georgia, right across the border from Lookout Mountain, sending my son off to college. And we have three girls, two girls who have already gone off to college. Uh, our oldest has finished college, and our second oldest um, has, uh, is, is in about her third year. And uh, if you're wondering how I have kids in college, we can talk about that. Um, <clears throat> So, but sending my boys, my only son, sending him off to college was a lot rougher. That was just harder. Uh, my son, he, he's, he has hemophilia. And so he was born, and a few, uh, a few months you know, down the road, he started having bruises on his body. And, and um, we took him to the doctor and found out that he had hemophilia, severe hemophilia, which is a blood disorder. And so uh, he bleeds internally for no reason. He has zero blood clotting factor. And so um, when you have a child with a, a disability that you've cared for and protected and watched so closely for so long, the idea that you're going to release them into the world is really, really hard. And, uh, and my wife, even more than I, she was, you know, she, she's watched him like a hawk, and he's just like any other boy through the years. He's just wanted to run and play and, you know, and get banged up and bounce off the walls. And so he's had injuries. There's been, you know, at a young age, he had surgeries. There are time where, times where, where he was airlifted in helicopters to the hospital. I mean, it was, there were, we were on the verge at times. And so letting him go to college was, was really tough. It was really tough. And we found ourselves at this weird stage of life. We're not totally empty nesters yet, but we're kind of like, we're approaching, which is really weird, but we're approaching this kind of stage in our life where the house is getting kind of empty. Or fortunately, our adult daughters moved back in. So, uh, so that'll help for a while uh, until they get married. So uh, it's, it's just a weird thing that, that God takes us through. And uh, as, as you raise children, for those of you who have already raised children who are adults and they're gone, you know what I'm talking about. And for those of you with younger kids, uh, enjoy these times. Don't look forward so much to the future. Because these are the good old days. They really are. These are the times where memories are forged. You know, these, these pictures and these times. And, and even, even the hard times, the stresses, the stress of it. Um, they did a study in, um, uh, back in the 70s, uh, I think it was uh, Sweden, uh, had a real low population. They wanted to encourage mothers to, uh, to have more children. And, um, and so they, uh, even, even single mothers, it was just, you know, they just wanted women to have kids because they were struggling with their population. This is back, I think, in the 70s or the early, early 80s. And <clears throat> they offered um, free childcare. And they would subsidize you know, mothers who had kids, married or unmarried. And they would offer you know, free childcare. Then they would pay for two weeks for the parents to go out of the country and, and go on a vacation. They would, the, the government would step in, the state would step in and do all these things to help parents care for their kids. And if you think the population in Sweden went up, you'd be wrong. And the reason it didn't go up is because when you remove the heartache and, you know, raising kids could be a hassle, right? I mean, it's a hassle. It just, you know, you're running, you're dropping your kids off at practice and school and homework, and it's hard work. But when you take away the hard work, you take away what it means to have children. And that's a lesson for us as we think about, you know, the, the struggles and the heartaches and all those things, that's part of what it means to raise children. And when we think about our relationship with God, 
the heartaches and the heartbreaks and the trials and tribulations, that's part of what it means to know God. And so we, when we think we'd be happy if those things were removed from our life, but we really wouldn't because the times of deliverance are, are, are so clear to us. They're, the times of deliverance are, are enjoyed so much and understood so deeply, God's grace being revealed against the backdrop of trials and tribulations. And so God knows what he's doing in our lives. <clears throat> um, Jonah chapter 4 says, but it pleased, excuse me, but it displeased, let me back up one verse. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. <clears throat> Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed an east, a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? <clears throat> name of our uh, sermon this morning is um, A City No Longer Forsaken. And uh, just to recap, we've discussed Jonah's call in chapter 1. Uh, his rebellion and recommitment. The past four weeks, we've explored the story of Jonah. And some of the themes maybe feel a little redundant because there's kind of a, a looking back. You know, Jonah's first call, then he's called again in chapter 3. And uh, God repeats his, um, his uh, message that he wants him to uh, proclaim to the Ninevites. Um, but in chapter 4, uh, we leave the previous discussion, right? We've talked about sailors and ships and fish and being swallowed in the ocean and Jonah's kind of new birth in the belly of the fish we talked about a couple weeks ago. And last week, Chad touched on, you know, the idea of our city um, and, and being witnesses. Um, but here in chapter four, we're invited into this dialogue uh, between God and Jonah 
And instead of exuberance and joy over Nineveh, um, there's this puzzling discourse between God um, and Jonah. So um, the least obedient prophet in the Old Testament receives the most successful response to preaching in all of the Old Testament, and he's ticked off about it. Right? I mean, you look at Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these faithful prophets, and they didn't have a whole lot of success. They were successful in the fact that they were faithful, but the response to their preaching wasn't very successful. And here's this, here's this weird story of Jonah who's, who's he's a rebel, and he's, he's not really faithful. You know, he's kind of a jerk. And, and, he gets, and, and his, his preaching gets the most successful response of any Old Testament prophet. I mean... That's more than irony. That's something that we should really pay attention to. Remember verse 9 of chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord, right? It's not about how good we preach or even the heart of the preacher, right? God saves people. So the first thing I want us to look at, actually there's three things I want us to look at here in chapter 4, and it's, the structure of it is, is, is Jonah's grievance with God over the city, and then God has an object lesson with the plant, and then finally, it's, there's God's grievance with Jonah over the city. So Jonah's grievance with God. God gives Jonah an object lesson in the plant. And then God's grievance with Jonah. And it says here in uh, the end of uh, chapter 3, verse 10, God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, uh, and God repented or relented of the evil which he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What's interesting is, uh, in the Hebrew, it's literally translated like this. It was evil to Jonah, what God did. Exceedingly evil, and it burned him. That's, that's the literal translation. It was evil. What God did was evil to Jonah exceedingly evil, and it burned him. You know, when you're a kid and you, you know, you, you're playing tag and you, know, you, you, know, you, you say something, and, oh, burn or something, you, know, you, you, you guys are you know, insulting each other, you're volleying back, you know, and, and you, know, you, really, you really do something that really gets the other person, you say, oh, burn. You know, Jonah's burned by God. He's just, God's, you know, he's burned by God. And what's interesting is he, he feels that God has actually acted wickedly in Jonah's mind. And his kind of twisted way of thinking, what Jonah has done with Nineveh, is, is acted in a way that's, that's not good, that's not righteous. He's, he's acted wickedly by showing mercy to Israel's, one of Israel's fiercest enemy, the Assyrians, Nineveh's the capital. So in Jonah's mind, this is, this is not a good thing. He's not just upset. This is God is, God is in his mind, strengthening allowing the enemies of Israel to survive one more day. Um, in the aftermath of 9-11, um, uh, there were songs that came out, right? We were, the whole nation was, we were, it was, uh, I remember it vividly. And uh, I was off that day from work, and I got a call from my brother, and we were in shock. And uh, if you were a normal human being, the next thing you were thinking is, when are our jets headed over there? to make a parking lot of whatever country did this to us. I mean, that's just a natural response. And there were two songs that came out, two country artists uh, came out with some songs. And the first was a guy named Alan Jackson. And uh, I won't sing it, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, some of the lyrics say, you know, where were you when the world stopped turning, right? It's a thoughtful song. 
And the song is a humble song. You know what I'm talking about. You know the song. And, uh, and, um, and, and it's a thoughtful, it's a humble song, and it's a contemplative song. And when you listen to it, 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 enc- it encourages you as you're listening to, to think about God. He says, you know, I know Jesus and I know God and I remember this from when I was young. Faith, hope, and love, right, are some good things he gave us and the greatest is love. So the response from this country singer is like, hey, uh, let's just stop for a minute here because there's a lot of hate in this world. And so when you listen to it, it's kind of, you know, if your heart is angry, it's, it causes you to stop for a minute and, and contemplate the big things in life and where do I fit in this whole program and, does God love me, and should I love God, and what should I think about my neighbor? And then there's this other song. <laughs> there's another song uh, by a guy named Toby Keith. And <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you listen to Alan Jackson's song, and you feel thoughtful and contemplative and humble, when you listen to Toby Keith's song, uh, you want to grab a bat or a, a shotgun or a missile launcher. You know, I think his song is called, I don't know what it's called, like the Angry American or something. And as you listen to it, you know, he's... He's, uh, he's strumming his guitar and he's singing. And the song's good. It's a good song. Here's, here's my 20-minute illustration about country music. But <clears throat> um, it's a good song, but it's a song that plays on different emotions. It plays on our base fleshly emotions of revenge. When you hear that song, you know, it's you want to you wanna go, you know, kick someone's booty, you know? Um, sorry, that's ex- as explicit as I could get here. Um, but you, you, it, you're, you're fired up with that song, you know? You want to go destroy your enemies. And um, the U.S. military, incidentally, ha- invited uh, Toby Keith for the next 10 years to, to play at the USO to fire up the troops. And that's understandable, but <clears throat> it kind of demonstrates how we react to enemies, the idea of our enemies, and our natural reaction, and it's a human reaction. We want to destroy our enemies, want to see our enemies destroyed. And there is a just indignation of retribution. And so part of what's going on here is, you know, as we read some of the, the failings of Old Testament prophets, we might be quick to judge them. You know, the Israelites, God had delivered them from, from Egypt and opened the Red Sea and, and did all these things. And then they couldn't trust God in the wilderness. And those, you know, those darn Israelites, and, you know, we shouldn't be so quick because we'd probably be right there with them. And um, I suppose it would be like God saying on 9-12, I want you to go preach a message of love to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. You know, you just... So, I mean, just just wrap your head around it. You know, just try to drop yourself in Jonah's context (coughs) for a second. (coughs) Um, The Bible isn't shy about the fact that people have enemies. Um, Jesus wasn't shy about it. Um, Jesus doesn't say, pretend your enemies don't exist. He doesn't even say, um, call your enemies friends. And just, you know, just, mm, no, you're not my enemy. Yeah, the Bible's uh, pretty, pretty realistic about the fact that, um, that they're enemies, that people hate us. And Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why doesn't Jesus say, like your enemies? Uh, Wouldn't that seem more reasonable, right? Like your enemies. Don't worry about loving them. 
Actually, it's harder to like your enemy. That's harder. Because like's an emotion. Love is not characterized by emotions, but actions. It's actually easier to love someone than it is to like them. You know, as you even, maybe, maybe you, you look at, you know, uh, you look around and you've, you see that there, these are some people, you know, sitting in the, in the auditorium here that you don't know very well, and maybe you've, you've known each other for years. Maybe there have been conflicts, and that's kind of, uh, loving your neighbor is, is not pretending that conflicts don't ever exist or arise, but it's being obedient to God to act in a way that demonstrates his character. So, um, like is an emotion you can't fabricate. Martin Luther King said, um, love is the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. Uh, we should be happy that Jesus did not say, like your enemies, because it's almost impossible to like some people. So that's helpful for us. Um, Jonah doesn't want the kind of success that saves souls. Uh, he wants the kind of success where he can go back to his native Israel um, and brag about the fact that God brought the pain to the wicked Ninevites uh, through him, you know. So Jonah's been listening to Toby Keith, not Alan Jackson, okay. You know, he, he wants to go back and brag and say, you know, uh, yeah, God destroyed uh, the Ninevites through me and he used me to do it. You know, it's kind of like coming back, you know, high five. You know, he's high five in the prophets back in Israel. You know, that's what he wants to do, you know. He, he doesn't want to be the prophet who who God demonstrates compassion through. That's not the kind of prophet he wants to be. And he says in verse 2, it says, he prayed to Yahweh and said, please, Yahweh, wasn't this what I said when I was still in my own country? And he's, he's almost lecturing God. He's like, didn't I tell you this would happen? You know, therefore I hurried to flee. This is why I went to Tarshish in the first place. You know, this is the prophet, you know, he's arguing with God. For I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and you repent or relent of evil. What's interesting is Jonah's words are a direct quotation of Exodus uh, 34 and 6, which says, The Lord, the Lord um, God, is a merciful God, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Jonah is quoting the book of Exodus. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin. Um, what's interesting about this is, the very next verse says, but who by, I mean, Kevin mentioned earlier, who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the children, um, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So, wait a minute, which is it? Is God merciful and slow, and having, does he have compassion? Or is he, does he visit iniquity on the guilty? I mean, which is it? Well, the factor, the component, right, the, the game changer is repentance. Uh, in Exodus um, 18.23, I have I pleasure, any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. And so here's the, here's the dividing line between us and God, between me and God, between you and God, is when we're offended by by you know, offenses, by, by enemies, right? When there's anger uh, that we have for someone who's done wrong to us, we kind of don't think we want, to, we, we want reconciliation with this person. We usually think, you know, let justice and judgment be executed on this person. And God, the factor, the, 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 the game changer, the dividing line is that with God, he desires repentance. 
So there is wrath built up, there's wrath stored up, there's judgment, there's all these things, but repentance changes things. And that ought to say something to us about people who are alive in this world, right? And we're sinners too. Is, yeah, God's just uh, indignation and wrath against sin is there. It's stored up, but, but repentance changes things. Um, a few sermons back, I had, we were talking about, um, I think it was uh, 1 John 2 and 6, and I was talking about the need for us to be repentant people, confessing people, people who are always confessing our sins. And there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really powerful component to, to the idea that, yeah, we know we're forgiven, but, but we, we still keep confessing our sins because we do keep sinning. And so the, the idea with God here is that he's merciful, Uh, He does have wrath, right? He won't let the guilty go free, but repentance changes things. And Jonah's oblivious to that. He's not thinking about it. Um, Encapsulated in the pronouncement of 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown is you've got some time, right? You've got some time. When when, when all men stand before God in the judgment, it wasn't that, you know, the first sin they committed, boom, a lightning bolt struck them dead. They had a lifetime, God gives us space to repent. He gives the world to repent. And this is, this is a merciful thing from God. Um, for all of Nineveh's evil, which is certainly worthy of judgment, uh, their destruction isn't a foregone conclusion. If they repent, they'll be saved. And this is helpful for us as we think about how we engage the world. Right? We, we know that we live in a world that is largely in rebellion to God, but, but there is space to repent. And in that space and chance to to repent, God calls us to participate in this kind of salvation through judgment warning. One day the judge is going to judge you know, all human beings, but, but right now, with that knowledge in mind, there's time to repent. Forty days and the city will be overthrown. And they say, we, we've, we've got some time here. Let's, let's, let's repent. Perhaps, in chapter 3, perhaps the Lord will have mercy on us. And he says in verse 3, therefore now... Um, Yahweh, I, be- I, take, I beg you, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And, and what's really going on here is Jonah is saying, you want to save Nineveh over my dead body. That's, that's really what he's saying, right? Take my life from me then. That, that's, that's just, just, I want to die. You know, over my de- you're going to save Nineveh over my dead body. <laughs> um, and God responds and says, do you do well to be angry? Which is his way of saying, how dare you? You know? So I'm, I'm, I'm just, I've updated the language here, okay? So that's what, he, God is, that's what God is saying. How dare you be angry? Um, and what happens next in verses 5 through 10 is an object les- lesson in compassion. It says in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And the Lord God appointed a plant, um, and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Verse 1, Jonah is exceedingly displeased because of God's compassion, but here he's exceedingly glad because of the plant. So um, there's, a, there's this massive contrast that we're supposed to see here. Jonah's angry with compassion, but he's glad over this little plant. Oh, this little plant. And and you know the story, if you've read ahead or you're familiar with the book of Jonah. Um, the next morning, God appoints a, a worm to devour the plant. And in case this sounds too, 
too you know, ridiculous to be true, there's actually a plant, I can't remember the name, there is a plant in the Middle East that sprouts up in a night. It just, it's, it's like a weed. You know, I've, we, we moved into this house and, we're, we're, and uh, we went in the backyard and one day there, there, was, there was just bushes and a couple days later there were plants this tall and I said, Maribel said, those are weeds. And I said, no, they're kind of pretty. And she said, only weeds grow that quick. And, uh, and, and sure enough, you, know, you pull them up and they just they pop right out. But God appoints a worm to destroy this plant and Jonah is sad. And then God says, you know, you said you want to die? I'm going to make you feel like you want to die. And God sends a scorching east wind, right? And the sun is burning down on his head. Here's this burning again. Before he's burned, now he's really getting burned. He's really burned by the sun. Yeah, he really feels like dying. And um, the, sun, God, you know, the sun rose and God appoints a scorching wind and it beats down on his head and he's faint. And then he really says, it's better for me to die than to live. And God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is it right for you to be angry over this plant? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And what's being contrasted here just by implication is this. God has toiled over all of creation. Nineveh hasn't done a thing to make this plant grow. Um, all of creation, and Nineveh are part of God's creation, the inhabitants of Nineveh. These are creatures made in the image of God, and um, Nineveh is important to him, and it becomes the object of his compassion. See, the book isn't about Jonah. It's called the book of Jonah, but it's not about Jonah. The book isn't about Nineveh, right? There's, there's the great city Nineveh, but it's not about Nineveh. It's not about the Ninevites. Uh, the book is not about fishermen, um, even though it's a harrowing tale of their repentance. The book is not about the fish. The book is about the character of God. What we're supposed to glean from, from, from the story of Jonah is not even Jonah. So, so a, a simplistic rendering and application would be, here's what Jonah did bad, don't be like Jonah. That's not the message of the book. The message of the book is, what does this tell us about the character of God? What does this tell us about the mercy and compassion of God for his creation and the inhabitants of the world? What does this say about him? It tells us, it tells us about God uh, something very powerful, that even the wicked, even God's most rebellious creatures, most idolatrous creatures on the planet, God wants to save. God delights in saving. Um, and he says, You pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You know, it may, seem, it may seem obvious to us, right? This may be an obvious point here, but you know, God loves people more than plants. God loves people more than trees. Right? You just you think a little bit about the world we live in. You know, things are kind of crazy right now. You know, so a couple years ago, I remember a viral video on YouTube, and um, and uh, there was a group of nature activists in North Carolina. So somebody's shaking their head that you remember what I'm talking about. And it's, it's this weird video, and it's like it's a bunch of people gathered around and they're weeping and wailing over trees. And um, and I'm not trying to make fun of them. What I'm saying though is. Um, uh, I guess the only way to com communicate it is, you know, God's, the irony here of Jonah mourning over this plant, which gave him shade, 
is, is in God's mind ridiculous. God is saying to him, you've mourned over this plant. You didn't do anything to help build it. Shouldn't I also have, shouldn't I a million times more have compassion on these people who, I, who I've made in my image? It's an object lesson. Um, another good way to illustrate it is this. Um, to, to communicate this point is God is trying to, um, to in, in showing Jonah a lesson about pitying the plant, which he didn't do anything to make or grow, um, it's, it's contrasted with God's compassion, right, towards a city filled with animals, people and animals. And that's why animals are mentioned too, right? God says in the very end, you know, here's all these people, oh, plus cattle, right? You, what? You know, it just seems, that just seems bizarre. And all, here's all these people who don't know their right from their left, oh, plus cattle. Well, cattle, the idea is cattle is also God's creation, you know? These are things that God has made. He didn't just make people. On the sixth day, he made animals too. I mean, God cares about animals, you know? My, our, our dog got sick a few, a few, uh, a few years back, and um, my wife had requested prayer for the dog. We love the dog. And uh, her, her brother, who's my best friend, he was kind of, you know, joking, you know, that, you know, God wouldn't answer the prayer. And, you know, she quoted the passage of Scripture, you know, a righteous man has compassion on his animal, you know. And, you know, um, God, God loves his creation, human beings and animals too. Um, here's a good way to think about it, though. Um, and maybe it's easier, maybe this hits home for us. It, it's easier to see, you know, the, um, to see the bad children of other parents whipped than your own. You know, you've been in the grocery store, and, you know, there's, you know, maybe, you know, maybe my kid at some time, maybe your kid at some time, but, you know, there's always, you know, you've seen that kid who just, you know, is screaming at the top of their lungs, and, you know, okay, don't pretend like you didn't say this, because you probably have said it at one point, but you said, you know, if that was my kid, you know, but, but really, if it was your kid, you'd have a whole lot more mercy and compassion, because it's always easier to want to see other people's children spanked for their bad behavior than it is for your own because they're not your own. And that's what, kind of what God is saying to Jonah. Yeah, you have no problem casting the Ninevites away and seeing them destroyed. They're not your kids. They're not your creation. They're mine, right? Now, I'm not, I don't want to get into a theological issue whether they're really children of God or not. I mean, we know, we know that only, only those who have been redeemed, you know, in, in Christ are true children of God, but in terms of God's creation, right? They're his creation. And God is saying, this, these, these are my creation. You don't understand, you know? That's why it's hard to tell other people how they should parent their kids, you know, or whip their kids. You know, you really just really need to give them a good spanking, you know? But they're not your kids, so you don't have compassion. And so that's what's going on here. <clears throat> but, these, but Nineveh is now a city, it's no longer forsaken by God. There, there's, this transi- there's a transition that's happened here. Um, and the point God is making is Jonah's behavior is completely absurd. Um, God wants us uh, to care about people more than we care about anything else. Why? Why does God want us to care about people more than our lawn, more than our, our possessions? Why does God want us to care about people more than our reputation or our home or our neighborhood or the job we work out. Why, does, why is God so bent on us caring for other people and caring about other people and caring about whether other people go to heaven or hell? Because they're made in his image. Um, 
the, the, I don't know if he's a comedian, he's a magician, Penn Gillette, you know, the, the, the duo Penn and Teller, you know, he's got this, uh, he, he came out a couple years ago and he said that it boggles his mind that Christians who believe in heaven and hell would not be out evangelizing more. He said, to me, he said, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them about salvation in Jesus if you really believe that the alternative is eternal damnation? Right? God wants us to care so deeply about people that, that the gospel just comes pouring out of us. That what we've partaken of, the, the status now as children of redeemed, that that just comes pouring out of us and we want everyone to partake of that. that that's what God wants from us. So we've looked at you know, Jonah's grievance with God. We've looked at God's object lesson in the plant and what that was all about. And then third, there's God's ultimate grievance with Jonah over the city. And this is really God's question to Jonah and to us. He says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city uh, in which there are also 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, which is God's way of saying that they don't know which way is up. These are, these are people who, they, don't, they, don't, they can barely even know right from wrong. That's what he's saying. They barely even know right from wrong. Um, in Revelation 21 and 2, um, there's a picture of the church as a holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, beautifully dressed for her husband. Um, and every picture, in some real sense, prefigures, every, every, excuse me, every city that God saves prefigures this um, eternal dwelling place um, of God among his people, right? The eternal city, the church. Um, God's redemption of Nineveh, and, and here's, here's, the, here's the Christ-centeredness of this, of this passage and of this book. God's redemption of Nineveh is a preview of his calling upon the world to join his city. Um, it's a preview of, of, of Jesus' salvation to the world. It's a preview of what, through the gospel, Christ would bring, which is the invitation of all men to join into God's city, the, the turning of cities, the repenting of cities. You know, cities is where all the people are at. As the cities go, you know, the, the, the villages go too. Um, and so... The Bible says when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. And this is something that maybe we lose, I think, in, in our uh, living out our daily life and the hustle and bustle of everything we, we do. Um, God's message to uh, Jonah and to us is um, even the most antagonistic unbeliever is made in the image of God. And such were some of you, you know, and, and me, we were there. We were all enemies at one time, and God brought us close through the blood of the covenant. He brought us close through Jesus Christ. And so the idea is these are my image bearers. Yeah, they're under the wrath right now, but, but take to them this message. Um, Matthew 9.36, Jesus is going through all the cities and the villages teaching, and it says he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing all of their diseases because he saw the people and he felt compassion for them because they were distressed like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers 
are few. God says to us also, should I not have compassion on these great cities? Should I not have compassion on the cities of men, on these great multitudes of people who are going about their daily life and they don't know me? Shouldn't I have compassion on them? And we know the answer to that. And God calls us to participate in his compassion of salvation to the lost. Let's pray. Father, um, you have transferred us. You've transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Um, you've, you've plucked us up. Um, we, were, we were the spoils um, of Satan's uh, uh, um, work and you plundered his house and you took back the souls that you chose before the foundation of the world and Lord God uh, it becomes easy for us to for that memory of the salvation with which you've purchased us the, 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 the great cost at which you redeemed us uh, it can be easy for us sometimes to uh, just forget that and so we pray oh God that we would really see um, our staying quiet, our holding our peace um, as not an act of love but an act of contempt for our neighbor. Open up opportunities for us and give us uh, the boldness and courage to proclaim from the mountaintops that Jesus does save, that there is hope in Christ. Father, we thank you and pray that you would empower us for this purpose. Let your name be made famous and glorious among the nations and among the cities and use us to do it in Jesus' name.